Okay, guys, so today, uh, or this cutting room floor episode, I think will be the last cutting room floor episode as I have been doing it. We're finishing, we finished up the book of Luke, uh, as I mentioned yesterday. I'm going to do one more sermon next week as just a Christmas sermon to sum up Luke. But um, I think this is going to be the last cutting room floor, um, maybe for a while, maybe forever, I don't know. Uh, you guys let me know if this has been helpful to you. But um, one of the reasons you remember I did this is because these sermons in Luke needed to be shorter, at least some of them needed to be shorter. And so I wanted to share with you some of the things that just didn't make it into the sermon or something we needed to think more about. And so uh, I'm thinking about doing some other things. If this ministry has been helpful to you, let me know if you'd like me to keep doing it. Um, but uh, anyway, so... I got two things for you as it relates to this final passage in Luke. In Luke 24, we look there at the ascension, but you notice, uh, that at the ascension, at the, after they, after Jesus ascends to heaven, and there he pleads the merit of his blood, and there he sits down in his kingly rule. Uh, but you notice they, disciples, those disciples, they see this and they, with great joy, go back to Jerusalem, and were continually in the temple. Now, maybe for some of you that throws you off. You're going, wait a minute, why are they going back to the temple? And yet what's interesting is, is when we actually slow down and think about it, think about the day of Pentecost on Acts chapter 2. What were they doing? They were celebrating the Pentecost. Same kinds of things they would have been doing for centuries in Judaism. and Well, at least historic Judaism. Uh, we should add you know, biblical Judaism. And so, uh, you might be wondering why were they continuing in those um, historic ideas of the Old Testament? Well, I think it's good for us to be reminded, right, that Jesus was a Jew. Peter, James, John, these guys are all Jews. Paul was a Jew. And uh, again, we see them going back to the temple. We see them uh, celebrating Pentecost. And so here's what that indicates to us. Here's what that tells us. And I think this is important to note. That the early Christians, those first Jewish Christians, did not see what we now understand to be Christianity. They did not see Christianity as to be some new religion, some something separate from historic or biblical Judaism. They understood it to be just as Jesus taught them, that it was a fulfillment that explains why they're going back to the temple. That explains why they're going to, uh, why they're continuing to sell, uh, celebrate Pentecost. These first Jews, who were the first ones to receive the gospel, they understood it to be a fulfillment. It was only until Jews began to persecute Christians because of uh, their worship of Jesus, it was only then that Christians were forced to begin to gather outside of those synagogues and create what we now call churches. Uh, Jesus was going to build his gathering, the church, that's what church means. But it was not a foregone conclusion that Christians would celebrate or, or begin some new religion, as it were. It wasn't new. It was historically understood. Jesus understood it. And as I'm going to show you in just a minute, uh, that it is a fulfillment. And so it was only until persecution arose uh, since the historic Jews rejected Christ, that they then set up their own thing. So it was Christians actually were believing that they were 
properly worshiping as the Lord had revealed himself in times past. So when we think about Judaism or when we think about being an Israelite or the old covenant, we can think of one, two, three, four, five things that would make up what it means to be a Jew um, as we think about the Old Testament. So first off, you needed to be of the line of Abraham, right? If you were to ask even someone today, what does it mean to be a Jew? They would eventually say, well, you are of the line of Abraham, of the seed of Abraham, of the offspring of Abraham. That comes from Genesis 12, that all the people that were the Jews, the Israelites, were of the line of Abraham. Uh, there were people, sojourners, that could come in and be part of that, but they would then have to take up the law. Sojourners can come and be part of historic Judaism. However, they would have to be part of the law. And that was the second thing that I think that it means to be a Jew in the Old Testament is you had to uh, obey the law. They had a particular set of revealed truths from God to them. The most famous of those, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Then for all the males, in order to be a Jew, you had to be circumcised on the eighth day. You recall that Jesus was circumcised on Luke chapter 2. We'll think about this week. He goes to the temple, and that was a good thing. The Bible was putting that forward as a good thing, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Males had to be circumcised. And then fourthly, the land. To be a Jew meant that you were part of uh, the promised land, that that was your citizenship. That's where your citizenship lies. There's, of course, a fight today between um, uh, all different kinds of people over there in the Middle East and the Jews and what they say is their land. And so, yeah, that's the fourth thing. And then the last thing, of course, is the one that's most prominent, this notion of the temple, right? Where God's presence was said to dwell. In other words, the Jews were God's people because God dwelt with his people. And so those are the five things of what it means to be a Jew. And yet, when we come back in with our understanding of Christ and what he has done, we'll look at it in just a minute, uh, and what he will do, we are reminded that Christianity is the fulfillment of these things. So when we think about the seed of Abraham, we read in Galatians 3, 8 and 9, that it is those who are of faith in Christ that are of the offspring of Abraham. Uh, that Paul makes that so clear. He knew the Bible better than anyone. And he understood that when he looked at the seed of Abraham, what he saw, what was being taught there, was not just a physical line, but a spiritual line, namely that we have the same faith that Abraham had. Abraham believed and trusted in the person of the Lord to save him, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15. So it is with us. When we look at the person of the Lord Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection, we have righteousness. Therefore, we are of the same faith of Abraham. Therefore, we are of the seed of Abraham. Secondly, the law, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17? He said, right, that I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so when we trust in Christ, we are trusting in Christ in part because he fulfilled that revealed will of God for us on our behalf. So the law is not abolished, but it is fulfilled. And we trust in Christ to be the fulfillment of that law force. The priestly laws, he's fulfilled. We thought about that in the ascension. Right, The uh, civil laws, he's fulfilled all of those on our behalf. Therefore, all foods are clean. The moral law remains, but that's true of all humanity. And of course, we trust in Christ even for that. Uh, but yeah, he's the fulfillment of the law. Matthew five seventeen. circumcision. Circumcision, that was a big one for the early church. You see time and again, that is coming up as a big uh, argument. You'll think about Acts chapter 15, where they have the Jerusalem council. 
uh, where they come together to try to understand what should we think about Gentiles and circumcision because they knew that to be a Jew was to have your male children circumcised. And what we read in Colossians 2, I'll read this for you, verse 11 and 12, listen to this. This, by the way, is where uh, our Paedo-Baptist friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ that believe that babies, this is where they would go. They say, Colossians 2, Paul writes, In him, he's writing to the church in Colossae, In him you also, you were circumcised with a circumcision, circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having, and then he goes on to be more clear. In other words, there's this spiritual circumcision is what he's talking about. Circumcision was always pointing to the circumcision of the heart, which is what Deuteronomy taught. And Paul's saying there's a, when you trusted in Christ, there was that spiritual circumcision. And where is it we see that pictured? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Not through bab- you're not you're not raised with Christ because you got baptized, but in faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so there Paul is saying that there's this there we do have a circumcision, but circumcision was the cutting, right? And so we've been cut apart, we've been set apart, as is evidenced in the picture of baptism. And so that's where we show ourselves to be outwardly displaying ourselves as being cut off from the rest of the world and set in Christ. That's why Paedo-Baptists want to say that baptism replaces circumcision. I'm fine with that. The problem is, as it says there in verse 12, it is those that are of faith in Christ that should receive that new covenant sign of baptism. Not babies, because they don't have faith. Uh, But nevertheless, we do see circumcision is fulfilled in our faith in Christ. And the baptism, our baptism, is a picture of that circumcision. Uh, so that is fulfilled. And then the fourth thing, in the land, right? Jews would have had the land. They had that geographic space. And we see in John 4.21, you remember he speaks to the uh, to the Samaritan woman when she talks about the place and the hills in which to worship. And Jesus says to her in John 4, a day will come when this this hill or that hill doesn't really matter as to where you worship. In other words, the land itself is not as important because now Christ is king of the earth. The whole earth is his land. And then finally, the presence of God with his people. Um, we now know that those of us in Christ, now the spirit no longer dwells in a temple made with hands, uh, but instead he dwells in our hearts. Colossians, since I have it here, Colossians 1.27 To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, the nations, it's no longer limited to the Jews, uh, among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so 1 Corinthians 3.16, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we are now the temple of God. And so all five things here uh, that we see, that because of the person and the work of Christ, uh, the historic teachings of Judaism, the things that would make up a Jew, have been fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ. And so therefore, Christians saw themselves, they saw the fulfillment of these things, and so therefore, they didn't see some new religion in Christianity. They were going to the temple, they were selling Pentecost because they understood that Christ has fulfilled these things. 
They weren't trying to set up a new religion, though it was a new covenant. It wasn't a new religion. And again, it was only until the uh, those Jews that did not believe in Christ as the fulfillment uh, that began to persecute them, that they began to create their own gatherings, what we now understand to be um, churches, right? And so, uh, but it's important to see that the Christians, we still believe today, that we are the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Uh, I find that to be incredibly enlightening. Uh, when I talk to my Jewish friends, I am quick to mention these things to them. Um, yeah. So that's the first thing I wanted to talk about. That explains a little bit of why they're going to the temple. But the second thing I want to do is just as a way of review. You remember I said at the beginning of the sermon yesterday that if you live with a truncated or diminished view of the cross, the resurrection and the ascension, that that is a recipe for a defeated Christian life. And uh, I think that's still true. If you have a defeated, I think it's still true because I just said it yesterday, so I didn't change my mind. (laughs) But nevertheless, I just want to slow down and think about this a little bit more as a way of reviewing Luke. Remember, all four Gospels, and even the New Testament in general, they are thinking hard about these three things. And my concern is, is that many of us, as Christians in America, we just don't think very deeply about these three things of cross, of resurrection, and ascension. And as a result of that, I think that has a lot to do with why we live such defeated Christian lives. And so, here's what I want to do for you just one more time. I want to review for us just those doctrinal ideas so that we will then learn how to apply them and live in the victory of Christ. And so, here they go. Cross and uh, resurrection and ascension. So, I'm going to give you five accomplishments of the cross that we see in Luke that is accomplished. In the cross, we have first, right, propitiation. And that then is talking about the wrath of God, the anger of God against our sin is quenched, right? That's what happened on the cross. God's anger, right? That's when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being forsaken so that in Christ we don't have to be. God's punishment was met in him. Secondly, in the cross that was accomplished is justification. Right? This is when we are counted righteous. Right, so because Christ takes the propitiation, takes the wrath of God, the the debt that we were to pay, He takes it. God then is able to transfer to us Jesus' righteousness. That's that great exchange. Jesus takes the penalty for our sin; we take His righteousness. That it was accomplished at the cross. Third, redemption. Redemption means to buy, right? To buy back. By the blood of Christ at the cross, he's able to purchase us out of the slavery of our sin into that righteousness that is counted to us. Fourth, we get, I should have mentioned this up here next to propitiation, but expiation. This is probably the one that is less familiar to you guys. Expiation. And this is just meaning our sin is put away. As far as the east is from the west, so has God removed our transgressions from us. So expiation means he sent it away. He's propitiated the wrath. He's the wrath of God. He's justified us. 
He's redeemed us. He's bought us back from our sin. He's put our sins away. And then fifth, the one that is so important, adoption. We are sons and daughters. Right? We are counted as sons and daughters of God. This is so huge. God didn't just justify us and then sort of send us away. He could have done that and say that you're no longer, I redeemed you, you're no longer enslaved to your sin, I've put your sin away. He could have stopped right there, but he didn't. Because he loved us, he wanted us part of his family, he adopted us in. Sometimes this doctrine would be called reconciliation, reconciliation or adoption. Those are five things. And guys, you think about all the applications that you can actually work out. So you don't have, if ever you feel like God is angry at you, he's not angry at you. He sent his son to take his all of his anger away from you. You can think about counted righteous. If people make you feel guilty or if you feel guilty, no, you're counted righteous. You think about the fact, no, I'm enslaved to my sin. I can't get out of it. No, Jesus bought you uh, out of the slavery to your sin. And expiation, you try to think about this notion of God is just sort of hanging your sins and reminding you of them, that guilt, that shame. No, he's put those sins away from you. You don't need to live in that uh, tyranny of the haunting of your sin. And then lastly, you might think and be tempted to believe I have no family. God doesn't love me. He doesn't want me. No, he's adopted you into his family. There's a thousand other applications. And so it's not just the doctrinal mindset, but these five things help us understand our lives as Christians and the ways in which we can apply these beautiful accomplishments. So we got to think more than just Jesus died for my sin. Yes and amen. But the Bible uses these words and we need to so as to live in the power of the gospel. Resurrection. We thought about two things here. Do you remember those? One was how because of the resurrection, Jesus defeats sin and death. That was a big thing. In the resurrection, we see the accomplishment was as Jesus defeats sin and death. And so this really is tied to this notion of redemption. Um... Yeah, and even justification. But uh, because Jesus defeats sin and death, therefore we can have the hope for eternal life. Therefore, because of the resurrection, we can choose to, in Jesus' new life that's overcome sin and death, we can choose to live in righteousness, which has been counted to us. But nevertheless, we don't have to fear death, right? We don't even have to fear, again, the tyranny of our sin. Jesus has defeated both of those. The resurrection has that. Uh, so that's why Paul says that if Christ does not raise from the dead, then our faith is futile. It's pointless. But with the uh, resurrection, we then know that Jesus was who he said he was. The sacrifice was received. And therefore, we can have confidence that our sin is paid for and we don't have to fear death anymore. And we're going to have eternal life. Which leads me to the second thing that the resurrection accomplished. And that is glorification. I was talking to a non-Christian recently, and we were talking about this resurrection, and he was sort of just perplexed about the resurrection. It seems too far-fetched, which, of course, it is a little crazy, right? But the thing that I explained to him, I said, you have a hunger uh, for food, right? And so so your hunger for food reveals the reality of food, Uh, and your hunger or your thirst for water reveals the reality of this thing called water, something that satiates your thirst. So in the same way, your hunger for a world that is void of death and void of evil 
is satiated, is found. It's a real hunger. It's in you because such a world does exist. And that is found, and we see that accomplished in the resurrection. And in particular, we see it in the glorification of Christ's body. Right? His was a first fruits. Jesus' glorification was a first fruits. And so therefore, when Jesus' body not only defeated sin and death in the resurrection, but also his body was glorified, uh, it was a perfect body, that was a first fruits, so we will receive a glorified body too. It won't be a resuscitation in the sense that I'll just get the same body that has all the same problems, but no, I'll get this same body, but that same body will be a glorified body on a glorified earth, worshiping a glorified Savior. The resurrection accomplishes that. And then finally, the and again, let me just think about this. So again, so we already talked about applications, fear of death. We don't have to worry about fear of death. We can live confidently in the world, right? Jesus says, don't fear the one that can... Kill the body, but can actually destroy, uh, that can destroy the soul, as it were, not destroy the soul, but can put you to hell, Jesus says. So we can live confidently, no matter what comes in the way of COVID or militaristic, you know, threats or whatever it is. We can believe that uh, we have hope beyond the grave. So we don't have to worry about those things. And then also, we can have a great deal of hope in the fact that a day is going to come when we're going to have real bodies uh, and not have to worry about all the evil and suffering and pain and death. So that gives us a lot of things to hope in today that gives us confidence to keep going. So, so much application in these two things. Uh, and then thirdly, this is what we thought about yesterday, the ascension. Can I spell ascension? And one, right, we had the priestly. Jesus is the great high priest. Remember, we talked about the fact that he's interceding for us. And how is he interceding for us? He's always, right? Always. Man, I can't spell today. Always. Goodness gracious. He's always interceding for us, right? He's pleading. In his ascension, when he came into the heavenly heavenlies, the true holy of holies, into heaven to the Father, he goes as our great high priest, interceding all of these things, uh, all of these things for us. He goes to represent that into the holy of holies, and he's always praying for us, and in that sense, he is saving us to the uttermost. Our salvation is secure. Uh, and so the application I gave to that, remember yesterday, was the fact that we can rest in his love. That was the same application that Paul had, that since Christ is interceding, pleading the merits of his blood and his body, therefore, uh, we can know that the uh, we will never be separated from the love of Christ because he's always praying for us. We can think about the power of that, of his love, as he prays for us all day after day after day. That was the ascension. And then the second thing we thought about yesterday was his being the great king, right? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And by that we know his power. That power is in the Holy Spirit, right? That's why he needed to go. That's why he said it was better for you that I leave, right? Because he goes and he pleads the merits of his blood, he then can send the Spirit. The Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. Well, it goes back to the first one. We now are the Spirit of God. His power is now being worked out in us. And so therefore we can live in the power and the might of the King of kings and Lord of lords that has all authority on earth uh, and on and in heaven. 
And so he is the great king. And that was accomplished when he went into the Holy of Holies and sat down. And so guys, these three things, I mean, you've got to get this stuff deep in your soul. Not only the doctrines, but the application to the doctrines. Uh, and so the cross, these five things, the resurrection, those two things, ascensions, two things. If you remember to go back way, those of you that have been around a while, you remember we did this walk. Remember the, the gospel walk? We go from the temple to the court. Uh, so we go from the temple, which is the Lincoln Memorial, right? That's a made as a temple. Justification, that's a courtroom. You go to the Supreme Court. Redemption, we go to Eastern Market. There's a market there. You buy back expiation. We didn't have that one back then, so I got to create one for that. But adoption would be the White House. You get to go back home. That's a good way if you're trying to look for tricks to remember these things and live in those truths. Uh, and so, brothers and sisters, just prayerfully consider these things. If you need to think more about them, reading them in Scripture, reading books about these doctrines, and then learning how to apply them in your life to live in the power of Christ. Luke wants us to do this. All four Gospels are making huge deals of this. The New Testament epistles making huge deals of this. The book of Revelation, huge deals on all three of these things. So must we. You've got to have more than just a two-dimensional understanding of the Gospel or of the cross. More than uh, just an awareness that Jesus did die, but why is it arose from the dead? But why is it important that he rose? And then thirdly, why is it important that he ascended? And that will then lead us to a great hope of his return. All right. Hope this gives you greater certainty regarding the things that you have been taught about the king and the kingdom. This has been such a fun study for me. I hope it's been for you. I know that I worship Jesus. I want to leave us on that. Those disciples worshiping Jesus, and because of that, they had great joy. That's the fountain. As we think about all these things, it should lead us to worship Christ, which leads us to great joy. I hope it does for you the same this Christmas season and for the rest of your lives.